You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Well, hey, good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, if we've never met before, and you see there's somebody new with me on the camera. This is my younger son, Jonathan. We have three adult children. Aunt Sophia is the oldest, then our son Nathan, who lives in Tennessee, and then our son Jonathan. And so Jonathan had some spare time today, and I said, Jonathan, why don't you come join me on the Q&A? Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Good, good. So uh, we're going to follow the normal pattern, although I do want to give a special thank you, a special wish to everybody, just simply saying thank you for joining us here on this first Thursday of 2023. Jonathan, you got any notable plans for 2023? Uh, one thing that I am going to try to do this year is to memorize more Bible verses. Okay, good. Well, that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing to do. Okay, well, great. Uh, so we're going to begin with this program and our lead question. And our lead question is kind of long. It's longer than our normal kind of question. So I'm going to read it, and I hope you can follow along. But if you saw the headline or kind of the, the, the title for this video, Help, This Church is Weird, uh, you'll see why I kind of give that title to it. As I read this question from Monica. And so Monica, thank you for your question. I'll just read Monica's question right here. She says this. First of all, I want to thank you, Pastor David, for your work. It helps me to grow in my faith and understanding of the Bible. My question is, our son got invited to a church where the members sat in a circle. The visitors, like our son, had to sit outside of that circle, and they weren't allowed to take the Lord's Supper. The women also had head coverings. Now, this family who invited our son wants us to form a house church, and they invited us. We would have to sit outside the circle and wear head coverings, and I also wouldn't be allowed to vocally take part in the service. It makes me sad and angry at the same time. What are your thoughts on that? Does this almost look cult-like? I know that they are my brothers and sisters since they believe in the gospel and are born again, but I feel when we are with them is restrictions and not liberty. All their children are living at home still, have no access to the internet, and can't go anywhere on their own. I really would like to have fellowship with other Christians since I live in a very remote area where there are only Catholic churches, but I have a very hard time thinking of being a part of a church like that. Thank you for reading my rather long question. God bless you in your ministry in 2023. So, Monica's question. Have you ever been to a church like that, Jonathan? Never. Never. Okay, so let's just kind of discuss a little bit what she's talking about. She's talking about a church, and the people in the church meet in a circle. Okay. But if you're a visitor, you're not allowed to be part of that circle. You have to sit outside of the circle, and you aren't allowed to partake of communion if you're a visitor. Monica doesn't really explain what you have to do to be allowed in the circle, I mean, maybe it's kind of clear to everybody, but it isn't in her question at all. We don't know what you have to do to be allowed in the circle and to be allowed to receive the Lord's Supper there. Uh, but they have already approached Monica. I don't know if you pitched that up, picked that up, about starting, I don't know, like a, a daughter church or an associated church in their home mm -hmm. that apparently would follow the same principles. So her question, what about this? Is this weird? 
what's going on with this? Well, let, let, let me go over some principles. And Jonathan, you just chime in as you think fit. I think that generally speaking, it's good for every Christian to belong to a church, to a community of other believers. Now, I know this isn't possible for every person in every situation. Some people, you know, just can't get out. Maybe they're more housebound. Uh, other people just haven't been able to connect. But I think we would all agree that ideally this is the case. And even those who don't uh, commit themselves to a church or can't be part of a church, even those people agree that it's good for most other Christians, whenever possible, to be a part of a church in a church community. So that's the ideal, generally speaking. Secondly, this church that Monica mentions practices what I would call exclusion. Mm. There's a clear line between those who are in and those who are out. Now, let me say, Jonathan, I don't know if this is going to surprise you or not, but I don't think that's automatically wrong. Now, I think what you do with it can be wrong. Yeah. But um, in the first few centuries of Christianity in the Roman Empire, from my study of church history, th this wasn't uncommon. And especially it would be the case if they were concerned about persecution, because you were always cautious that somebody was coming to you as like an infiltrator, like an informant. Uh, and so you wanted to be very careful about who you recognized as part of the group. And definitely in the early church, uh, often, it wasn't like a universal thing, but often they would meet together and have a part of the service that was open to everybody. And then they would have like a second part of the service that was for the members of the church only. Mm. And it was at that second part that they would receive communion. Okay, so um, churches were often like that in certain periods in the early centuries of the church, and uh, they still can be today. So I, I wouldn't automatically disqualify a church for that. Although in the Western world, it's a little strange, obviously. Okay, number three, I don't think that the head covering thing is commanded by the scripture. Look, this is a big debate. We get questions on this a fair amount of time, but I don't think that it's commanded by the scripture. Look, to be very clear on this, I believe that the principle of 1 Corinthians 11 is relevant. And I would define that principle like this. It's the recognition and respect of the leadership of qualified men in the congregation. That's what the head covering was all about in the Corinthian culture. But the way that that recognition and respect can be expressed can differ from culture to culture. It was expressed by a head covering in Corinthian culture uh, and other parts of the Roman Empire, but it's not necessarily expressed that way in our own day and age. I really draw an analogy on this, Jonathan. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this. I really draw an analogy with this, with the principle of the holy kiss. Hmm. Okay, five, to, uh, how, how often in the New Testament are head coverings mentioned? <clears throat> Not very often. Well, in, in, like, basically in one chapter, right? Yeah. First Corinthians, basically that, mm -hmm. okay? Now, five separate times in the New Testament are believers told to greet one another with a holy kiss. Yeah, and most of Paul's. You know, four times in Paul and once in Peter. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Yet, um, I, I don't know any churches that enforce a holy kiss. Yeah. You know, they, they just understand that what that means is 
give a warm, welcoming greeting, a sincere greeting. And how that greeting is expressed can differ from culture to culture. So those head covering churches where it's command, are they kissing? That's what I, well, anyway, that's, that's another subject. So, but back to the head covering thing, even if it's not commanded, it isn't prohibited. If people want to do it, they can do it. I mean, we have freedom in Christ. And so if you want to wear a head covering, go for it. You can just don't think it makes you any more right with God, any more approved by him. Um, the important thing is the recognition and the respect of the leadership of qualified men. I would have a problem with a church that made it like a law in that church to wear a head covering because uh, that's making a, um, a command out of something that I think isn't a command in the scripture. Now, there's a key thing in Monica's email that I want to uh, touch on. She said a couple things that she was sad and angry being there. That's not good. Mm -mm. And that the atmosphere was full of restrictions and not liberty. Mm. Th those things can be a big red flag. T to me, it doesn't sound like that's the place for Monica to be. Yeah. If going to church makes you sad and angry, like all the time, something's not right. Maybe it's not right with you. Maybe it's not right with the church, but something's not right. Um, and again, restrictions and not liberty, that's going to get oppressive after a while. But, but finally, I just want to address the question that Monica asked. She asked, is it a cult? Um, that idea of a cult can be understood in a few different ways. There's theological cults, but then there's also sociological cults. They, they just kind of have the atmosphere of a cult. And it sounds like this church might be, I, I wouldn't want to judge it without uh, more information, but it might be what you might call a sociological church. They have the atmosphere of a cult without necessarily having all the wrong doctrines of a cult. So based on all of that, what, what might you say to Monica? I think she needs to find a different church. Yeah. It, it's difficult because she doesn't have a lot to pick from that she says. That's always but, tough. But it doesn't really sound like this is the right place for her. Exactly. That um, sad and angry to me are two big words in her email. Yeah. So, Monica, I can't really say if this church is a cult or not. Um, it, it could have some of the kind of uh, the atmosphere of a cult, which can be very dangerous. There are groups that have pretty much right theology, but the atmosphere is very cultish and that's not good for anybody so those churches are to be avoided by all means uh but let me say this just finally um i think we should be able to put up with a little bit of weirdness at church you know yeah th th there's it's going to be difficult to find a church that's exactly what you want yeah and so i, I think we need to be able to put up with a little bit of weirdness but there's obviously a line that we wouldn't have crossed. And from the way Monica describes it, it sounds like it's too much. Yeah. Yeah. Sad and angry. Not good. No. All right. Anything else you got to say on that? Well, I think it's great that she's concerned about her son because her son yes. was the one who first uh, went to this meeting or this church gathering. And yeah. it's it's good to see that she's looking out for her son and definitely – engage with her son and um, I'd be interested to see what her son thinks about it 
because we obviously know what she thinks about it, but it'd be interesting to see what her son thinks about it. And hopefully her son isn't too involved in this gathering and that they can find a better community to attend. You know, I I would add one other thing that was like a red flag to me that I didn't mention before. Didn't you find it strange that they weren't even allowed in the circle, Hmm. yet they were asking them to start a house church at their house? Yeah. Okay, that to me sounds a little strange. Um, Why would you ask somebody to be the base for your future if they're not even allowed in the circle yet? I mean, to me, if if I had a church that was kind of like, you, you you had a definite restricted area, you know, for people, I, I would only want people to be in leadership if they had been part of that inner group for a long time. Yeah. Certainly not somebody outside of the inner group. Yeah. So that, that that's another kind of red flag. It's kind of a couple of things that don't really seem to match to me, at least. All right. Anything else to say on that? No? Good? Okay. You've never done this for me before, so now we go over and we take a look at some of these questions. Here are some... Jody asks this question. How do we know the serpent in the garden was actually Satan? Jody, good question. There's a couple ways that we surmise this. Number one, in the book of Revelation, the dragon, uh, Satan, as he's represented in... Revelation, I think it's chapter 12 and chapter 13, is called that serpent of old. And that's like a a red flag right there. Also, in Ezekiel chapter 28, I think it's Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In those passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, Satan, Lucifer, this fallen cherubim, He was described as having a presence in Eden, the garden of God. So you put together that reference, which I believe is in Ezekiel, and this idea of the serpent of old from Revelation 12 or 13. And I think it's a pretty reasonable assumption that that was Satan there in the garden of Eden. Um, You you know, could I say absolutely positively 100%? Maybe not, but I'd like give it a strong 98 or 99% based on those two uh, ideas. And and we do see Satan personally tempting individuals at critical places. Don't forget that in the Gospels, Satan personally tempted Jesus in his temptations in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't some lesser demonic being. And it kind of makes sense that if Satan personally tempted the second Adam, Jesus Christ, he also was interested in tempting the first Adam, Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, we would say. Yeah. Good. All right, good. Um, you want to read the next question? Do you see it on there? Yes. You could just read the first name. You don't need to. Okay, from Shenanadu? Shenandoah. Shenandoah. Do we know if Adam and Eve have children before the fall? As, as far as I know from the Genesis account is they didn't have children before. I know that there is uh, some belief, and I believe that's the evolutionary theory, that Adam and Eve were the first um, priest sort of established 
in the Bible, but that's based on the evolutionary theory of that, that there was a whole congregation. Yeah, the idea that they weren't necessarily the first man and woman, but the first established priests, yeah, yeah. in the yeah. Bible. But uh, to take the Bible literal, I believe that Adam was the first man created and Eve was the first woman created. Yeah. Uh, that's how the Bible presents it. And there's no mention at all of Adam and Eve having children before the fall. Exactly. It, it, it's almost like this. And Shenandoah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to cause more questions than I answer with something like this. But it's like this. If they did, God doesn't want us to know anything about it. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because we're just told nothing. Now, we're not told that they had no children before the fall, mm-hmm. but we aren't told that they had. And so, I, I, was, I would say the answer to that is no, they did not. And if they did, God didn't want us to think about it or know about it at all. So, I, I would say the answer is no, Be, because there's specific mention of them having children after the fall. Yes. Now, it kind of leads or is connected to it, an interesting question. How long did Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden before the fall? Yeah. It, the Bible doesn't say, does it, at all? It doesn't. If you had to guess, what would you say? Just, it's a, nobody's holding you to it. There's, <laughs> this isn't, it's just, just a wild guess. What would you say? Uh, one day. One day. You think it's more? I would say... More a than few, a day? More than a day. Maybe more than a day? A uh, uh, th- five years. No. Not five. Okay, somewhere between one day and five years? Yeah, most likely. What? No, no, no. You got to narrow it down okay, a little bit okay. more. Maybe a week. Maybe they got a to week. experience... I think a week. Yeah, All rest right. on the seventh day. Right. And, I don't know. And yeah. then that's when destruction started. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. Okay, good question. Okay, uh, next question from Ilueta. Ilueta asks... I was having a devotional with my little girl and a question arose. When Adam was naming the animals, could they speak to Adam? Well, I'm glad that you're having devotions with your little girl, Ilueta. That's great. Yeah. Uh, but w- again, this is something that the Bible just says nothing about. There are interesting Jewish rabbinical traditions. I got a cool set of books behind me. Do you ever take a look at this book? Uh, the Legends of the Jews. Right here, The Legends of the Jews, by edited by Lewis Ginsburg. Uh, and this one is volume one from the creation to Jacob. Okay. I bet there's interesting rabbinic legends about the naming of the animals. But what are they? Legends. Yeah. They're, they're, they're not Bible. Yeah. So we don't have any indication about that at all. Uh, it would be kind of interesting. You could kind of have fun with that idea. You know, the Adam's naming the animals and, you know, a bear's come up to him and, well, what should I name you? Yeah. And they suggest, uh, name us porpoises. Yeah. And Adam says, no, bears. Yeah. Wh- I already whatever. got one yeah. of those. <laughs> okay. So, we just don't, you can have fun with the idea, but there's just no indication of it at all. So, we have no indication of that, uh, Ilueta. So, you know, you, you just couldn't think about it in any way other than just purely speculating. Yeah. Okay, uh, you want to read the next question? Sure. Next question is from Jane. She asks, what would, say, what would you say about a current trend that churches encourage dancing during the worship time? I do not feel right about it. We are being told by the leaders to dance uh, as praise in worship and that we are supposed to enjoy it. 
I thought praise is supposed to be for God's pleasure. What are your thoughts on this practice? Jane, that, that, that's a great question. And, and I like the way that you phrase it. Because you're touching on a principle that's very important. Um, praise and worship is for God's pleasure. It's to please God. It's not to please us. How often we get that turned around. Now, look, I, I understand, and I, I don't want to be so rigid on this that people get the wrong idea. But there's something wrong when we judge a time of praise and worship by how it felt to us. Because honestly, how it feels to us isn't of first importance. What's of first importance is how it honored and praised God. Now, the the reason why I wouldn't be so rigid on that is sometimes we can be grieved because we really believe that God was not praised and honored. Mm. So we are grieved but we, we shouldn't be grieved on our own behalf. We should only be grieved because we honestly believe that the Lord wasn't honored and worshipped. Not necessarily because it just wasn't pleasing to us. Hmm. So, Jane, you're, you're putting your finger on a very important principle there. That the whole purpose of worship is not to honor or please us, but to please the Lord. Um, husbands and wives kind of know this. Uh, there, there's a, a, a trap for a husband uh, if he's going to buy a gift for his wife, but he's really buying it for himself. Mm. You know, like yeah, uh, new lawnmowers. Yeah, yeah. Here's a new lawnmower, a new power tool, or you know, uh, here's here's something new for my custom car, yeah. honey. Happy birthday, or whatever it is. And you know, the the wife has every reason to be annoyed with that because she understands you didn't buy that for me. You bought it for you. And, and we can have the same attitude in worship. We're really, we're doing it uh, for our own sake instead of for the Lord's sake. Now, that being said, I, I don't think that the scriptures prohibit dancing in praise and worship. T- to my mind, Jonathan, there is zero mention of this in the New Testament. I can't think of anything. If you think of something, let me know. But I, I can't think of any mention of it in the New Testament, but there are several mentions of it in the Old Testament. Here's one of the problems that I have perceived in my years of ministry in dancing in a praise and worship setting, that sometimes, some people might say oftentimes, but I'll I'll just say sometimes, the people who are dancing are doing it to draw attention to themselves, Mm -hmm. to show other people their moves, so to speak, or what they can do. And again, that's removing the focus from where it should be, the focus on the Lord. So Jane, I I agree with you that you should be troubled about this somewhat. Um, and, And certainly, I don't think that we should be forced or compelled to do anything like that. Look, I mean, Jane, I, I can't speak for you, but I, I'm a terrible dancer. I've got no, you're laughing. It's true. <laughs> and and so for me, it would be just very unpleasant to be told that I have to dance to the Lord. Yeah. I, it, w- it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be pleasant for anybody watching either. <laughs> so, you know, I, it, it wouldn't be worse. And that kind of thing, if it's compelled, 
if it's sort of forced, then then it, it isn't really worship. So I, I don't know what to say, Jane, other than just to say this. I think you're right to be concerned with this. Jonathan, you got anything? Yeah, it, it sort of reminds me uh, when Jesus tells the Pharisees sort of to, uh, when they're fasting, not to announce it to people. Yes. You know, and, and people are doing these things to draw attention to themselves, or some people are, not to single yeah. anyone out, but there are some people that are doing this for attention. It, the, it could be done that way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like you said, it takes focus away and it um, distracts others. You don't want to hinder anyone else from worshiping God. And if what you're doing distracts others, uh, then you're taking their opportunity away from worshiping God. Let me tell you a story. Years ago when I pastored in another community, this was before we went to Germany. Okay. Um, we had a woman come into our church and she was very interested in dancing mm -hmm. during the worship. Time. And not crazy, not super, but I mean, definitely dancing around. Okay. So this is what we did. She, she had come up to the front row mm -hmm. and this is what we told her. We said, ma'am, it's okay for you to dance in the way that you're doing it, but we're going to ask you to sit in the back. That, that way you're not a distraction to all the rest of the congregation that's, you know, not interested in dancing and just wants to focus on the Lord. Yeah. Let me tell you, she was not interested in dancing if she had to stand in the back. Mm. It, it, it was as if she was only interested in it if she could be seen by others. Yeah. If she couldn't be seen by others, she wasn't interested in doing it. And that just kind of indicated that at least in that situation, there was something difficult with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, next question from Sean. Uh, you reading this one? You can read that one. Okay. Sean asks, what is your favorite book in the Bible? And FYI, I found your Ecclesiastes videos online, and that's what made me start following you. Well, Sean, I'm happy to hear that. Uh, that Ecclesiastes series I did several years ago at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, and... Uh, that series was very meaningful to me. I just I mean, I, I loved teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I, I think that my uh, commentary on that, the written commentary, is helpful to some people as well. Uh, so thank you for that, Sean. Favorite book of the Bible? Sean, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I don't have one. <laughs> my favorite book of the Bible is whatever I'm studying at the time. R right now, I'm digging deep into Leviticus. Mm. Um, and man, I'm amazed at it. I'm just like, this is amazing. This is the best stuff ever. But I feel like that into whatever book of the Bible that I'm digging deep into. I don't really have a favorite book of the Bible in that sense. Jonathan, do you got a favorite book of the Bible? No, I mean, same as you, but right now I'm reading through the book of Joshua. Okay. So I'm really enjoying Joshua yeah, right now. It's like in, yeah. yeah, it's whatever my focus is at the time. Uh, so, some people ask me, you know, what's my lifetime Bible verse or something like this <laughs> or this. And I tell people... That whole Bible belongs to me, mm. not just one verse. Yeah. So don't don't fence me in. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Next question from Holiday. Could you help me with the story about the shepherds versus the wise men? Matthew versus Luke's account. Would love to hear you expound on that. All right. Holiday. I don't know if this is what you're asking about specifically, but. There was a New Testament theologian. Matter of fact, he used to teach at the Christian college in our town. Very esteemed and has done some great work. And this uh, theologian 
wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew where he said that the story of the wise men in Matthew was essentially made up. Mm. Now, he, he was careful in the way that he phrased it. He said it was made up using a recognized Jewish form of storytelling or teaching. Uh, I think I'm doing this off time. I think, I think it's called Midrash. And in this particular form of Jewish storytelling or teaching, you share things sort of for their symbolic value without anybody thinking that what you're saying is describing things that actually happened. Mm. Um, and what he said was, Matthew took the story of the shepherds from Luke and he reworked it mm. to teach different lessons but his basic thing was the wise men never actually visited Jesus. Hmm. Let me tell you, I think that's wrong. Yeah. And after studying this scholar's work and his arguments, I think what he's neglecting, and you can find comments on this in my commentary on the book of Matthew, just enduringword.com, look up Matthew chapter one, you can find my comments in there on that. But the difficulty with that is, are there any similarities between Matthew's writing and this form of Jewish hmm. teaching or storytelling? Yes, but there's more differences than there are similarities. Hmm. So it doesn't really fit to say that about Matthew's account. Uh, no, I do believe that these are separate and independent, and not only that, separated by some period of time. Hmm. The wise men probably didn't come to Bethlehem for maybe a year after Jesus was born. Uh, because it seems that they saw the star when Jesus was born, and that's when they launched out from there. So, Holiday, I, I think that's kind of what you're talking about, and I would say that these are separate and valid accounts. The shepherds did actually visit Jesus on the night he was born, Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus on the night he was born, and the wise men really did come perhaps a year later which kind of tells us that all our nativity sets are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, anything else on that? Uh, well, I just think it would be interesting if, um, if we're saying that the shepherd's story is similar or exactly the same as the wise men, uh, shepherds were often seen as low class and not, not so wealthy. Uh, but we hear of the wise men bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And to me, it would be hard to, say, how could the shepherds bring that? If it was the shepherds who really did it, how could they afford such expensive gifts yes. to give? Um, so to me, that that seems like a flaw right there. In yeah, yeah. and there's several points that are kind of like that in that. So yeah. good, good. Okay, next question from Eben. I guess that's how you're going to say the name. Eben asks this. In Luke chapter 17, verse 5, the apostles said to Jesus, increase our faith. Jesus' response was about having faith. What does Jesus' answer mean? Is the parable he said next related to it in Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 5 and 10? Okay, uh, let me, John, you're looking at the passage right there. Yeah. Um, if I remember right, help me to know, because maybe I'm remembering wrong. Okay. The apostles or the disciples said to Jesus, increase our faith in response 
to him telling them that they had to forgive people. Yeah. Okay. Which is kind of cool. We usually don't have that response from people. Hey, you've got to forgive your brother or sister who's wronged us, wronged you. And the response being, oh, Lord, I need more faith to do that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a cool response because it takes it seriously. Yeah. It's like, man, I know that I really need to do this, but it's not necessarily within me to do it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's a great response. Um, okay, so maybe we should read these passages. Um, verse 5, and the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Once you read starting verse 6 there. Yeah, so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, have, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and, come at once and sit down in, to eat? But he will not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk. And after you will and after you will eat and drink, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I not think or I, I think, think not. That- So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that. uh, We have done what was our duty to do. Okay. So let's kind of give the the steps here. Jesus tells his disciples, you got to radically forgive. Mm -hmm. They say, Lord, increase our faith. Jesus says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and cast in the sea. Mm-hmm. Then he says, basically a story that to my reading, the essential point of that story is be humble. Mm. Don't think that God owes you anything. Mm. Okay, so here's the steps as, as I would kind of point them out. Jesus gives a radical command to forgive. The disciples say, increase our faith. Jesus says, you don't need a lot of faith for this. A small amount of faith, a mustard seed worth of faith will do this. Mm. You see, sometimes we get hung up on the idea that what we need is a massive amount of faith. Mm. Now, look, I'm the first one to say big faith is better than small faith, but small faith in a mighty God Mm. is better than big faith in something that'll fail. More important than the amount of faith we have is what our faith is in or who our faith is in. Mm. And and I think what Jesus is communicating is, disciples, you don't need a huge amount of faith to accomplish this. You just need to have your faith in the true and living God. Mm. Now, having faith in the true and living God and the... I don't know if you want to say, it sounds a little weird to say, but the, the, the spiritual power that comes into a person's life through having that kind of faith, that can make a person kind of proud. Yeah, That's why Jesus immediately follows with the parable about being humble before God. Mm. Don't think that God owes you anything. Uh, we are unprofitable servants. We've only done what is our duty to do. We don't deserve great praise for our you know awesome faith or whatever it is. And we as Christians should always operate from a humble standpoint, never acting as if we deserve praise for that. So that's how I would connect those dots. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay, very good. I, I really like the the thing, Jesus, of, of saying, yes, you need faith to be able to forgive other people, but it's not so much you need huge faith. Your faith just has to be in in the right place. Yeah. Okay. Next question from Deanna, who asks, what's your opinion on reading the Apocrypha for knowledge? Okay, the Apocrypha. Apocrypha basically means hidden books, hidden revelation, hidden books. And it can refer to a few different things. There's Old Testament Apocrypha that was included in in many editions of the Bible. Hmm. Uh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Ezra, Wisdom of Solomon. These are books that were not recognized as part of the uh, scriptures by the Old Testament scholars, by uh, the um, ancient Israelites, Mm -hmm. but they were honored books, just not scriptural books. Those books are not quoted in the New Testament. No. Though almost every book of the Old Testament other than the Apocrypha is quoted in the New Testament. Mm. So there's sort of those books of the Old Testament Apocrypha, but then there's other apocryphal books, you know, sort of extra or out there books like uh, the book of Enoch. Mm. Uh, There's New Testament apocryphal books, the infancy of Jesus, Mm. the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Thomas, things like this. Things that, that now, what is my opinion on reading those apocryphal books for knowledge? Read them. Just don't think that they're scripture. Yeah. Look, I got a library full of books. <laughs> I got a library full of very interesting books. They're not scriptures. I've got Bibles in here. I can't reach one right now. <laughs> I got a lot of Bibles in here. The Bible's the Bible. Everything else should just be judged by the grid of the Bible. So there's nothing wrong with reading those apocryphal books. Just judge everything by what's in your Bible. Only the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, those 66 books of the Bible, that is what is God-breathed. That is what is inspired by God. That is set apart from everything else, from every other writing, from every other church tradition. Other writings may have value. Certain church traditions and teachings may have value, but they're not God-breathed scripture. As long as we keep that distinction in our mind, I think we're fine. Yeah. Good. Have you ever read any of the weird apocryphal books? I've heard only some okay th- some things. weird weird ones was like the infancy gospels. Mm. You, you know, it drove people crazy that there wasn't anything in the gospels about Jesus like as a baby, yeah, or as a toddler or something. And so there's stories like that Jesus like a five year old kid, and uh, his uh, his uh, friends are teasing him, you know, and this uh, so he turns one of his friends into a donkey. Mm. You know, or he's making these clay birds, you know, with his friends, yeah. and then he claps his hands and they all become birds and fly away. They're just these mm-hmm. these dumb and you know, stories and so. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that was the donkey he rode in on. No, that was not oh, the donkey okay. he rode in on. No. <laughs> no, stop it. Stop it. Okay, next question from Isaac. Good. It says, Would you help us understand the time Jesus said? paraphrasing, only the father who knows the day and the hour of his second coming. Okay, now, 
Jesus was saying that there was something that he didn't know. Mm. When John, I thought Jesus was God. He is God. He is God. Was he God when he walked this earth? Very much so. God knows everything. God does know everything. Jesus said there was something he didn't know. Mm. We're in a predicament here. Well, okay. Not so much. <laughs> because Jesus was and is truly God. Yes. But he also was and is truly human. Exactly. And sometimes it's a little difficult to understand how the human and the divine interacted in Jesus. Yeah. And this is what we know. That Jesus set aside certain divine privileges. Now, I say set aside. He did it by choice. Mm -hmm. It's not like he could not know. It's not like it was impossible for him to know. It was that he chose not to know. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see this in some of the very human things that we see. There are places in the Gospels where it says that Jesus was hungry. Yeah. God in heaven, does he ever get hungry? No. No. The Bible says specifically he doesn't. There are places in the Gospels where it says that Jesus was tired. Does God ever get tired? No. But Jesus willingly set aside those divine qualities. Okay, he didn't, he didn't, when I mean set aside, I mean he chose not to access them. He didn't stop having them, but you can have something and choose not to access it. Exactly. And there was an aspect of divine knowledge that Jesus chose not to access in his humanity. You think that's a good way to explain it? I think that's a great way to explain it. Okay, now, a, a way that I've, I've used the illustration to explain this before, and this is an illustration that makes sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to anybody else, but I'll try it. You know what a three-legged race is? Yeah. You know, like at a picnic or something? Mm-hmm. You have two people... And they, they tie together two of their legs. Yeah. You know? And so it's a three people, no, two people, two people. running on three legs. Yeah. So they call it a three-legged race. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if uh, the world's greatest sprinter mm-hmm. is in that race. Yeah. And he ties himself to your leg. Yeah. You're pretty fast. You ran a marathon. I did. That's right. So did you. Well, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> okay. So... uh the world's greatest sprinter ties himself to your leg. Yeah. He's not going to be able to run as fast. No. But he's still the world's greatest sprinter. Still. He just chose voluntarily for a purpose to not access that ability. Yeah. Again, for a divine, for, well, three-legged race isn't a divine purpose, for a greater purpose. Yeah. Okay. So I, that's an illustration that makes sense to me. Yeah. I, I hope th- it makes sense to somebody. I think it works. Okay, good. Okay, Susan asks, hi, Susan. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're viewing today. And if Gunnel is viewing today, yeah, Jonathan's more and more. Uh, nice to see you. I, I hope you're able to view today. Yes, and I hope you're feeling better too. Yes. Continue to get better. So hello to Nils and Gunnel. Anyway, uh, I, uh, Susan asks, what are your best tips for growing in our faith? So nice to see your son, John, or join, son, join you. Um, Okay, tips for growing in our faith. Well, I think primarily uh, worship, right? We talked about worship earlier today. Uh, Maybe not in the best sense, but we can talk about ways that you can worship. Okay, but does worship only take place at church? No. 
worship takes place in in your life. Mm. Worship is is a devotion of your life, not just something you do on a Sunday morning or or a Wednesday afternoon or whenever you meet with your church gathering. Okay. So maybe we need sort of a bigger concept of what worship is. Um, and worship is something that we can do and maybe should do all the time. Exactly. Constantly. Okay, so worship is a way to grow in our faith. You know, in some sense, and, and Susan, I think this can be exaggerated, but it's true in some sense. Faith is kind of like a muscle mm. that when it's used, it, um, it grows, it strengthens. It, if you never use your muscles at all, they're just kind of going to grow weaker and atrophy. Hmm. So sometimes what I ask myself is, I say, David, when's the last time you took a step of faith? Hmm. When's the last time you did something uh, that was really kind of out there as a step of faith? Yeah. And um, yeah, that's um, that's something I think about a lot. Yeah, definitely is a muscle, and we're and we're told in the Bible to um, endure. Yes. And so, uh, we need to endure with faith. Um, yeah. So, I, I would just say that, Susan, maybe uh, just in prayer, seek the Lord about a way that you can kind of trust God uh, in, in something that'll stretch your faith a little bit. And, yeah. and I think that's a, a way to grow in faith. See, Susan, part of the problem is I know you. <laughs> and you know the word. You love Jesus. You're walking with him. So it's not like we have to say any of those corrective things, mm -hmm. but maybe it's just something just to keep, you know, going on and to keep stretch, uh, stretching out in your faith before the Lord. Thank you for that question there, Susan. Yeah. Next question comes from Raquel. What's your opinion on feet washing in the biblical way today? You ever been part of a feet washing service? I never have. Surprisingly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they can be pretty cool. Yeah. You know, people kind of... Who does it normally? Well, yeah. Okay. I'll I kind of give it to you from a, a, a Roman Catholic context, although lots of Protestant churches do this in some way or another. Mm -hmm. They do it in the sense of um, the Pope, they'll bring some guy who's really poor and destitute oh. to the Pope. <laughs> And they'll, you know, have them sit down and the Pope, I, I don't know if they do it once a year or something, but mm -hmm. it's a real ceremonial thing. And the Pope will wash the guy's feet. Mm. Now, that, that's a nice gesture. Yeah. You, you know, no, no, nobody could say that's a bad thing. But the, the thing that I think is kind of strange about church foot washing ceremonies is this. For us in the modern world, it's like a ritual that we do. Mm. In... Bible times, in New Testament times, it was something very practical part of life. Yeah. It was something that people did every day. They didn't have to have a special ceremony to wash feet. Yeah. It was just something they did all the time. So it's a little hard to pick an analogy of what would fit with that today. Um, I, I heard somebody trying to make an analogy between cleaning somebody's toilet Mm. And washing their feet. All right. I mean, maybe, kind of, I don't know. Yeah. But you, you see kind of the difficulty. The washing of the feet was something very normal that people did all the time. Mm -hmm. But only the servants, usually only the slaves, the person of the lowest status in the household would have the responsibility to wash the feet. Mm. So it was a very meaningful thing in New Testament times. 
But I would like to point this out too. There's a general rule. Now, I'm not going to say this is an absolute law, but there's a general rule for what the church should do. Because just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean that we should do it. Exactly. Right? Um, it's a little hard for me to get an example off the top of my head. But, you know, again, just because the Bible says something happened doesn't mean that we should do it. So th- this is the general thing is in the, from a New Testament perspective, if something was taught by Jesus, practiced in Acts, hmm. and spoken of in the New Testament letters, then that's for the church in all ages and all times. Now, again, I'm not going to say that's an absolute, but it's kind of a good general thing to go. And Jesus definitely taught on washing feet, and he definitely said we should do this for one another. So there's nothing wrong in doing it. But if it is an absolute thing, it's not seen anywhere in the book of Acts, and in nowhere is it mentioned in any of the New Testament letters. So, again, I, I take pains. There's nothing wrong with churches having foot washing ceremonies, although I will say this. Somebody I know who used to take part in foot washing ceremonies from time to time, they would say this. They said, people never came to church with cleaner feet in their life than when they would come when they were having a foot washing ceremony. Yeah. Can you imagine everybody getting pedicures and everything before the foot washing <laughs> ceremony? Because that's just kind of how we are. Yeah. But um, in the New Testament context, it really has the idea of selfless, humble, lowly service. And that principle, we should definitely look to apply uh, to one another today. Yeah. The principle of servanthood. Yes, exactly so. So, um, Rachel or Raquel, I hope that's helpful for you. Okay. um, Ed asks this question. Is the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer a good book for a deep study? I can answer that pretty quickly. Yes. Knowing God by J.I. Packer is a great book Highly recommended. Uh, go for it, Ed. I read that years ago, and it's really good. You've never read that one, maybe? No. And that's, that's, that's a good must-read list. Really good. J.I. Packer. Okay, uh, Maribeth asks this one. Did God really audibly talk in the time of Abraham? I would say yes. Yes. It says God spoke, and I don't know of another way that Abraham would hear God uh, unless with his ears. Not long ago, I was reading in Exodus. And in Exodus chapters 19 and 20, it says very plainly that God spoke audibly to the entire nation of Israel. Mm. So there are times when God has spoken to an individual or sometimes to a whole nation audibly from heaven. Now, we shouldn't expect this. And it's even okay, I think, for us to be suspicious of people who say that God spoke to them with an audible voice. Mm. But I I think there were certainly times in the Bible where it happened. We have a few occasions of this in the New Testament. Um, When Jesus was baptized and has said, this is my beloved son. Mm. Um, At the transfiguration as well. Yeah. One thing that's very interesting is that When Saul of Tarsus heard Jesus speak to him on the road to Damascus, Mm -hmm. um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is I, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Mm -hmm. 
when, when you bring together the different accounts of that, Saul heard Jesus speaking in an audible voice. Mm-hmm. The people who were with him, because he wasn't alone, yeah. the people who were with him heard something, but it wasn't really intelligible. Mm. So it's like they heard some kind of noise or something, but they couldn't perceive what was being said. It was for Saul alone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, Alfredo asks a question. What are your thoughts on astrotheology? Have you heard of the black cube of Saturn concerning Judaism? I've never heard of the black cube of Saturn. Alfredo, I, you, you have me and my son Jonathan at a loss. We, we got nothing. I, I'm just sorry. Um, I, I'm just not familiar either really with the term astrotheology or of the black cube of Saturn concerning Judaism. Uh, it sounds very esoteric. It sounds like it's part of that Jewish mysticism, maybe Kabbalah, you know, that sort of strain of Jewish mysticism that has a lot of features and stuff that I'm really not aware of. Uh, but really, I, I don't know enough about it to be able to speak to it. So I'm just going to have to pass on that question. But thank you for sending it, Alfredo. Another question from Corey, who asks, what's your thoughts on sleep paralysis? Hmm. I don't know anything about that other than the combination of the two words, yeah. sleep, which means you're asleep, paralysis, which means you're paralyzed. So if this is sort of referring to a paralyzed state that someone might have in a dream, and if there's some kind of spiritual significance to that, or people try to make a spiritual significance out of it, Corey, please forgive me. I just don't know. I'm yeah. just unfamiliar with that. Maybe a coma or sort of things, but... Maybe. I, do, I don't know. You know, th- this is one of the liabilities for me. Folks, the, the work I do and the work I do with, with Enduring Word, it is a little bit different in that um, I, I'm not technically an apologetics-oriented ministry. So, to be honest, I, I'm not out looking to learn about these kind of things my real focus is on biblical studies and application and uh, this commentary that God's given me to do. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that means I run across a lot of things, but um, I'm not out. There, there are some great ministries out there, uh, folks on YouTube and such, yeah. that are far more oriented, more in the apologetics kind of area, and they may know more of those things about those things than I do. But really, uh, my lack of knowledge, I think, is somewhat reflective of my focus mainly on biblical studies. So, so there's a lot of things that, honestly, I have to say, look, the Bible doesn't talk about that. I really don't know, Wh- yeah. which I'm okay with. I'm comfortable with. But um, there's other people out there who might have a greater depth of answer to that. Can you think of any thing in the Bible that regards sleep problems? I mean, well, I know God sleep some paralysis. Okay, you know, um, Adam, when he was put to sleep mm-hmm. by God and Eve was brought out of him, sort of in some kind of surgical almost procedure of God, God took a piece out of Adam and out of that piece he made Eve. Yeah. Uh, was that a kind of sleep paralysis? Um I don't know. I, I I can't think of other instances so much. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I just don't know. Dusanka asks this question. I have a friend who thinks the name of the Lord might have been manipulated. Since the Hebrew name for the Lord was Yeshua or Yehoshua, my friend argues it's not the correct translation of the name thoughts. Okay, Dusanka, what you're talking about is something related to the problem of what is often called the tetragrammaton. That's these four letters that have been used to represent the name, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. Hmm. Am I, why, in English, you would express these letters like this, Y-W-H-W. I think that's how you would express them. Those four letters, again, that's kind of the English transliteration of those Hebrew letters. And the problem is, is that Hebrew in that form, is putting out consonants and not vowels. Vowels are added with points. Mm. And so, you can have the same consonants that are pronounced differently based on different vowels. If you want to think about the English words, the English letters DG, that could be dig or dog, depending on the vowel you put in there. So, how should that tetragrammaton be pronounced? Well, older scholars and commentators thought that it should be pronounced Jehovah. That's why in older English usage, and I'm talking pretty much up through the 19th century, the the references to Yahweh come by Jehovah. Hmm. When I'm reading Spurgeon, I'm a big Spurgeon fan, uh, He'll, he'll occasionally refer to God as Jehovah. More recent scholarship, and I think better scholarship, has determined that that is really better phrased Yahweh, mm. Yahweh, maybe, instead of Jehovah. Jesus incorporates part of that name, Yahweh is salvation, Yahshua. And so, it, it's in there with that. Uh, I, I don't think that the Tetragrammaton was actually the name of Jesus. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. And the name Jesus is taken from, or is part, is means Yahweh is salvation. Hmm. Th- that's the best way I would phrase it, Dusanka. I, I hope that's helpful for you. Anything else? No. All right, last question. Bob asks, is listening to secular music a sin? Are you asking, Are you looking at me or am I looking at you? <laughs> well, do you want me to answer? Uh, go ahead. I if I disagree with you, I'll tell you. Go yeah. ahead. A sin, not inherently a sin, listening to secular music. But what I have found in my personal life is that listening to secular music doesn't edify my spiritual life. B- build up. Build up, yeah. It doesn't... Uh, I, I'm a uh, city bus driver. That's what my day job is. And uh, so as I'm driving, I constantly have music running through my head as I'm just driving around the city. And uh, I find it helpful to listen to Christian music because then that's the music that plays in my head. 
if I was recently listening to secular music or heard something on the radio, then I tend to play that song over in my head. And so where secular music isn't a sin, I think it can lead to damaging thoughts or sinful thoughts, um, but I don't think it inherently is a sin. So you're kind of saying it's, it's something to be careful of. Yes. Okay, well, let me, let me expand a little bit. Without yeah. disagreeing with anything that you said, <laughs> I, I would say, number one, if the Holy Spirit has spoken to somebody and say, I don't want you to listen to secular, then you shouldn't. Yeah. You know, the, the Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Mm. And, and there is a place where the Holy Spirit just deals with us as individuals and might say, well, for this person, I'm not going to deal with that person about secular music. But for you, I am going to deal with it. Yeah. So I totally respect that somebody can say, hey, um, this is something that the Holy Spirit's speaking to me about. And so I'm not going to do it. Totally respect that. And we need to give ourselves and in a sense give the holy spirit liberty to speak to different believers uh about different things like that yes and then another thing i would say is well just look at the fruit if if you can see that listening to second music is sort of producing in some way or another bad things in your life well then okay maybe that's a red flag if it's not well then maybe you learn something from that but i think what jonathan said is totally correct in and of itself, it's not a yes or a no, but it's sort of uh, where God is dealing with each individual Christian and what the Holy Spirit might say to each individual Christian. Yeah. And respect other or Christians that the Holy Spirit has led to not listen to secular music, uh, respect their, their choice and their decision in that and um, potentially not listen to secular music around that person. Yeah. Very good. Very good. That's about it. That's it. Hey, I want to say thank you on this first Thursday of 2023. And uh, this may very well be the only time you're able to join us, but you were able to today. Yeah. So thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Very happy to join. I want to say thank you to everybody who ha helped make uh, Enduring Words year-end campaign mm. a, a success. Thanks so much for your generosity. Thank you for your prayers. We're really looking forward to see what God... Uh, will do in and through the ministry of Enduring Word. We're off to a great start. Uh, our you version Bible plan, uh, God's peace for the new year, mm -hmm. man, like well more than 20, 25,000 subscribers wow. just in the last few days. Wow. That's pretty awesome. So thanks to the team of Enduring Word that's making things like that possible. And um, thanks to you all for joining in. I hope you can join us for future question and answer times. If we didn't get to your question today, I'm sorry. Uh, we can't get to every question, but I do want you to know that we keep track of all of the questions that came in on the chat, and we hope to uh, maybe get to some of the ones that we didn't get to at another time. Looking forward to what God's going to do in 2023, and again, thank you for joining us today. Yeah. God bless you. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.